From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Brian Green. So, you're thinking right now, all right, that's weird. Aaron has brought on the guy who played David Silver on the original Beverly Hills 90210. I didn't know he was a writer. No, it's so much weirder than that. Brian Austin Green is the guy from 90210. Today's guest, Brian Green, is the most famous theoretical physicist on the planet. So, it'd be totally fair for you to ask what the hell he's doing on our show, which is about TV and screenwriting. The answer is, I love this guy. I think his work is fascinating. It's about all the unsolved mysteries of the universe, like how many dimensions we're living in, how it can be that we only know what 4% of the universe is made up of, and why there's something rather than nothing. And you know what? I got my own show here, so what the hell? When else am I going to be able to talk to Brian Greene? We're going to have a fascinating conversation. Brian Greene was educated at Harvard and Oxford. He's taught at Harvard and Cornell. Yay, Cornell. And he's currently a professor at Columbia. By the way, little known fact, all of that is also true of Brian Austin Greene. Our Brian is a theoretical physicist, mathematician, and string theorist. He's chairman of the World Science Festival, which he co-founded, and he's a huge best-selling author who makes really difficult concepts understandable to wide audiences in books like The Elegant Universe and The Fabric of the Cosmos. Spend a little time with his books. Something will blow your mind on every page. I'm really excited to talk to him. And if one person finishes this podcast and decides to stop writing their lame, sci-fi, Star Wars rip-off, $200 million spec script, and goes back to school to become a theoretical physicist, well, then my work is done. Hi, Brian. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, So I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, You know, since this podcast is usually focused on TV and screenwriting, um, I want to start by talking about that arena a little bit. Um, Aaron Sorkin tells a great story about how Steven Spielberg came to him one day saying he just received a call from NASA. NASA asked Spielberg to make a movie about going to Mars. And Spielberg told them he wasn't interested in making a documentary. NASA interrupted and said they didn't want a documentary. They wanted Spielberg to make one of his giant tentpole studio movies about going to Mars. They hoped that would generate enthusiasm for the idea in the public, you know, enough to help them help help them with with funding. So I guess my question for you is sort of, you know, do you think movies about, you know, space and time and the universe can be a positive thing for all the reasons that NASA hoped? Or are they so often inaccurate because they're written by dummies like me that they drive you crazy? (laughs) Well, you know, I, I think that whenever science is brought within the umbrella of popular culture, I, I think that's pretty much a good thing. I don't like to make blanket statements as, you know, obviously if you do it in, in a really awkward and off-putting way, it isn't necessarily positive. But having people just exposed to the wonders mm-hmm. of exploration and, and just uh, coming into contact with some of the big ideas and the, the dramatic stories of 
what it means to go beyond Earth or go beyond what we understand or explore realms that we've never been to before. Any of that is a good thing. Now, whether that really translates into support for additional funding, you know, when push comes to shove, are you going to put your, your own well-being, you know, the dollars in your pocket against these wondrous ideals that you may have encountered in a film? I don't know. I've never really done a study, and perhaps others have, and there's, there's data on this. But the bottom line as a scientist, I just love it when people get excited about these kinds of ideas. And, and film is, is a great way to do that. And so are there any you know, film or films or TV shows in particular that you think for the most part sort of get it right? Uh, you know, Interstellar, 2001, episodes of Black Mirror. Do, I don't know if you watch any of those. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I love, I love Black Mirror. Uh, you know, um, I wouldn't really call that science per se. Right. I think it's, it's great storytelling that has a futuristic bent to it, um, but I, I don't think anybody watches Black Mirror and comes away with some enhanced sense of our understanding of the world. It may get them thinking about, wow, you know, what is it that's happening today that's going to have a dramatic impact on how we live tomorrow? And I, I think that's a good exercise for, for any of us to go through. Mm -hmm. But for science proper, you know, the kinds of things that have gotten me excited uh, about scientific ideas in the past, uh, you know, Planet of the Apes, the original. Really? Oh, man, I just love that. <laughs> Is that right? I, I guess I, I haven't seen that since I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, that left such an impression on me as a kid, you know, what is it, Charlton Heston uh -huh. kneeling before the half-sunken Statue of Liberty? Sure. I mean, that's an iconic moment, at least for me, where you think about, wow, you know, issues of space travel, issues of time travel, right. issues of nuclear holocaust, it all just sort of comes together there in a way that takes your breath away. And that, to me, is wonderful. Uh, more recent things, um, um, Contact with Jodie Foster. Oh, I really like that movie. That yeah. movie does not get enough attention. Yeah, yeah the Carl it, Sagan it, book. Yeah, yeah, I think it's quite wonderful. You know, and um, you know, it's moving and it yes. and it's wondrous and it's about the possibility of of life out there and what it means to us. And right. and I just think that's fantastic. You know, I'm sure there's so many. I have trouble always bringing these up into into main memory on the spot. Yeah. Do you have, do you have any that come to mind that? Um, that that were that you thought might have been really good. Well, I was a big fan of Interstellar. Ah, yeah, great. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, I mean, the the moments when uh, they leave the the ship to go to you know toward the black hole. Yeah. Um, and sort of not simplifying that concept, but at least um, you know sort of um, dramatizing it in a way that you know someone like me can understand the basic right. tenets of what a black hole is and how it affects time and yeah, you know totally, gravity. Totally. Yeah. So you're talking about things that are that are very close to my heart, both scientifically and narratively. Because, you know, um, even a couple years before Interstellar came out, I had a, a short story, a book that I wrote, about a boy who goes to the edge of a black hole, and indeed the same science, of course, applies. Uh, you know, this kid spends a couple hours doing a joyride around the edge of a black hole, comes back to show his dad what he's done, and suddenly realizes that time elapsed far more slowly for him than for everybody else, and when he returns, it's 10,000 years into the future. You know, and we, we turn this piece into a, not a Hollywood film, but to a live stage 
performance. Right. And that, where, that was Icarus, right? Uh, Icarus at the edge of time, yeah, exactly. Uh, where uh, Philip Glass wrote a, a full original orchestral score. It's amazing. And, and it's done sort of Peter and the Wolf style with a, a narrator on stage, the orchestra. Sometimes narrators me. And, and we also have a film that, uh, in an impressionistic way, uh, gives these ideas uh, a, a nice visual representation. Uh, John Lithgow did the, uh, the premiere of this, and many others have done it mm. since. And, and yes, yeah, so um, I think that idea... Uh, in both Icarus at the Edge of Time and, and also in Interstellar, is one of the most amazing because it's a real version of time travel. Mm, I yeah, love that. Not, yeah, it's not some um, hokey version. It's a version that every scientist agrees in principle would happen if you could hang out near the edge of a black hole. Right. And, and how did you like that process of, of writing um, in that mode? Well, it was an interesting uh, exercise for me. It was the first fiction piece that I'd ever done. And staring at the page and not having the restriction of nonfiction that I was used to. I mean, I, 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 I consider nonfiction writing to be an enormously creative task and a, and a difficult undertaking. But the guide rails of reality are there with you all the time. So you, 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 to me, I felt far less at sea when I'm writing nonfiction than hmm. fiction. On the other hand, once you get into writing fiction, the vistas are enormous. Yeah. And, and there's something incredibly exciting and frightening about that at the same time. And was it, was, was Lithgow, um, was, was he acting? Was he, had you written dialogue or was he sort of narrating? Well, he, it's a, it, Icarus at the time is written as a, a, a single performer. So he was narrating the piece, but within the piece there is dialogue. So he was acting in that he was playing the young boy. He was playing the boy's father. Mm -hmm. He was playing, um, another character, a futuristic uh, ship's captain 10,000 years forward in time that he has to play as well. Hmm. So, so, yes, he was, he was taking on all those roles simultaneously. And we're actually, right now, we're um, in the midst of creating a sequel to that oh, great. piece. Yeah, so it'll now be a full evening's performance before orchestras always had to pair it for Act Two with something of you know, host the planets or the Star Wars suite or something like that. Right. Now it's going to be a, a full evening of, of, of space travel. And the sequel is not sort of a Hollywood sequel. That's sort of maybe a unnecessarily a derogatory yeah, thing. Yeah, come it's, on. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, what I really mean by that is the sequel is driven by the scientific ideas. Mm -hmm. So it really brings the story full circle in a very satisfying way. And in that way also will make, I think, for an audience a, a very interesting evening. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Where, so w will it be performed in New York? Uh, it'll probably premiere in New York. Um, Great. The text is written, the, the film is done, and, and Philip Glass now has it all and is hopefully, as we're speaking, composing. But uh, oh my God. he's got a very busy schedule, so I don't know exactly when it's going to be the light of day. God, you're working with such great uh, people in this world, too. And, you know, your, uh, your audio drama, Late Falls, you had uh, Paul Rudd play Einstein. Yeah. Um, does any of this give you the bug to write your own big Spielbergian uh, epic sci-fi thriller? I, you, you know, um, not exactly. Although um, it's not as though I'm resistant to that. As, I mean, who in their right mind would? But my sweet spot at the moment is really 
writing more for for live stage presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's another piece that we did a I don't know about five months ago. Um, it was a collaboration between me, um, Joshua Bell, uh, Renee Fleming, wow. um, Brian Stokes Mitchell, you know, a sure. wonderful Broadway actor, uh, and also a guy um, who I'd never heard of before, but um, David Draymond. Do you know that name? No, I don't. He's a lead singer of a group called Disturbed, hmm. and they did a cover of Sounds of Silence oh, wow. that um, got a quarter of a billion YouTube view. <laughs> oh my God. And, and, and um, when I saw that piece that he did, I realized that it was the perfect finale to the, to the piece that I was writing, which was an exploration of sort of the entire universe from the beginning to the edge of time, right? And it's actually an adaptation of a book that I'm, that I'm writing right now. In fact, I, I'm looking at the partially written manuscript mm. on my desk. Are you getting stressed out? Uh, and, and, and so... Um, you know, it's so wondrous to have a live audience that that you're taking on these journeys, and and that's where my focus has has been of late. But uh, but sure, you know, any 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 great yeah. opportunity to to do something uh, big, you know, in 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 the world of film would be would be amazing. Well, I want to play a clip from uh, from your audio drama Light Falls, uh, which who knows maybe will be the basis for your uh, for your big. Um, Hollywood yeah. epic. Uh, the full title is Light Falls, Space, Time, and an Obsession of Einstein. So let's listen to the clip. The problem is that Mercury's orbit doesn't quite close on itself the way Newtonian gravity says that it should. But instead, the orbit shifts each year by a little bit, by about one ten thousandth of a degree, which amounts to 43 arc seconds over the course of a century. Astronomers suggested all sorts of strained explanations, like the possibility of a small as yet undiscovered planet tugging on Mercury. But none of it was convincing. So Einstein sits down to calculate the implications for Mercury's orbit of the equations he's been developing for gravity. And when he's done, Einstein stares at the page. The astonishment was not unlike what he'd experienced as a young boy with the compass. Einstein's calculations show that Mercury's orbit should shift by 43 arc seconds per century. Einstein's friend and biographer, Abraham Pais, described this as the most powerful emotional experience in Einstein's scientific life, perhaps in all of his life. So, you know, your passion uh, for, for the material, for the subject is so compelling um, and really makes the reader, um, you know, uh, I think more engaged with the material, um, yeah. you know, which is also, of course, the trick in, in dramatic writing, too. When did you first become, you know, enamored with Einstein? Oh, gosh. You know, when I was still in my teens, I, I began to read some accounts of Einstein's discoveries and you know, when you learn that the world that you're so used to is actually so different from what you actually experience, it, to me, that was this, this crazy moment, exciting moment. And I think, in, in a way, it's something we all crave, right? I mean, why do we go to movies and, and read fiction, right? We, we love to be taken out of the world that we inhabit mm-hmm. and be thrust into something very different. And to learn as a kid that you could do that in the realm of how things actually are, 
you didn't need to to go into the realm of fiction because the nonfiction world was crazier in some ways than anything that you'd seen in fiction. To me, that was that was enormously exciting, and and it was Einstein who led the charge on on revealing this. And so, so it was sort of his, um, you know, his 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 early work on on you know special relativity. It, it was it was learning about that in school that got you excited. It wasn't actually in school, you know. In school back then, and I don't know, maybe it's changed to some degree now, but in science, we kind of didn't get beyond the 1600s. Maybe we've gotten to hmm. the 1700s a little bit. It's kind of weird in a way that, you know, we're, we're, we're happy with instruction that kind of ends, you know, 300 or 400 years ago. Yeah. But, um, but no, it, for me, it was on my own. Uh, I did a lot of learning of mathematics on my own and a, a lot of reading in, in physics and science more generally on my own, and that's where I encountered these ideas. You know, I heard you say in an interview once that, that when you were young, um, your elementary school just wasn't able to teach you any more math, so they sent you to wander, this can't be true, but to send you to, you know, with a note to a college campus? Is... Yeah, actually, that, that is true. It, the, the one thing, it wasn't elementary school, it was um, what they called intermediate school back then, so it was uh, sixth grade. And, um, yeah, my math teacher, uh, uh, he said, look, there's not much more we can do here. But, um, <laughs> That's amazing. But he, so he said, look, take this note, which I didn't read because it was in an envelope and I didn't feel like I, I don't know, I don't know why I didn't read it, actually. But, uh, but with my sister, we went up to the campus of Columbia University and just started knocking on doors. And <laughs> if, somebody would, if somebody would answer the door, we'd sort of hand them the note. That is incredible. Just, I mean, this teacher didn't give you any specific direction about a person to seek out. He no. just said, go to Columbia? Yeah. He said, why don't you go up there and see what happens? And so, what happens? Yeah. So we first, I remember we first went into like the computer science department, but like nobody was there. <laughs> yeah. So right. we went up and we went across to the, uh, and I know the campus well now since I teach here, we went across to uh, the math department and just walked up the stairs and just started randomly knocking on doors. Uh, and did you ever find someone to give the we note did. to? We did. In, 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 in retrospect, as I'm describing it to you now, it, it seems kind of nutty. But I think it was the second or third door. The, the guy that opened it read the note and, and said, uh, hey, I'd love, to, I'd love to teach you. Wow. And he <laughs> said, why don't you come back, whatever it was, the next day or something, and, um, and for free. Like, we didn't have any money growing up at all. So uh, he was just doing this for the joy of, of teaching and learning. Wow. And I met with him sort of every day over that summer. And then when school began again, I uh, met with him every weekend. That's and, incredible. And uh, this went on for years. God, what a generous person. That's yeah, so great. Yeah, Neil Bellinson is his name. I don't know where he is or what happened. We stayed in touch, of course, for a very long time. But then as things happened, we just sort of fell out of contact. But wow. yeah, an amazing, amazing human being. And, I, you know, it just makes you wonder how many kids are out there in sixth grade who are not getting the, the math education that they should be getting yeah, and yeah, aren't yeah. so lucky to, to run into. Yeah, the nice like thing now, though, is with, with the Internet, these kids are, are somewhat less isolated. Right. Uh, to some extent, they can find each other in, in, in various geeky forums or... You know, they send emails to to people that they've heard of. So I get a lot of emails from kids, hmm. and, you know, too many to respond to all of them, but sure. I try to respond to as many as I can. That's great. Um, 
And then, you know, by pure coincidence, actually, I'm, I'm currently reading um, Chuck Klosterman's book uh, called What If We're Wrong. And a few nights ago, I got to the section where he talks to you, uh, which got me very excited. Oh, uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a really good book. You know, the, the premise of the book, for, for those who don't know it, is that, you know, we, we look back on history, and of course, it turns out that we were wrong about so much that we were sure we were right about in the moment. So he questions what the stuff is today that we're so sure we're right about that will someday prove to be completely wrong. Um, and in the chapter where he talks to you, you know, he talks specifically about how 2000, you know, for 2000 years since Aristotle, we thought that we understood gravity and yeah. then along came Newton and then came Einstein. Um, and now it's only been about a hundred years since Einstein. Are we making the same mistake again by thinking we've got it sort of figured out this time? Do we think we've got it figured out this time? Well, I think most of us would say that we have a completely tentative understanding that goes beyond anything that we've had before and is incredibly accurate at describing observations. But I don't think anybody thinks we have the final answer. I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, um, you said it's been basically 100 years since Einstein, and indeed... In the last couple of years, we have finally confirmed one of the other final predictions that come out of his general theory of relativity, which is the prediction of gravitational waves, that the fabric of space and time itself can actually ripple, like beating a drum or waving a flag. And the, the fact that 100 years later we're still confirming ideas that go right back to the brain of Einstein shows us that yeah, he had some pretty hmm. deep insight. But even he never really was comfortable with quantum mechanics, the physics of the very small world. And many of us think that even today we've not really properly understood the way to put ideas of gravity and ideas of quantum mechanics together in a way that allows them to coexist and illuminate each other as fully as they might. Right. And that's what's, what Einstein spent much of his... Um his, his later life working on, right? In a sense, but because he wasn't really happy with quantum physics, he hoped that he would do an end run around quantum physics, come up with a completely new description of the world that would show that all the weirdness of quantum physics was just a remnant, a residue of incomplete understanding. So in a way, he never even fully grappled as much as he might have with quantum physics. I mean, hmm. he made deep contributions to the subject, but he never really believed it in his bones. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, you know, one of my favorite lines of yours, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember which book it's from, um, but it's always stayed with me. Um, and apo uh, apologies if I butcher this, but you wrote, the only thing harder than imagining our universe with borders is imagining the universe without them. Which is such a just a, an incredible thought, um, you yeah. know. Can you explain a bit sort of what that means? Is the current thinking, you know, that the universe is infinite? I mean, obviously, there's different schools of thought with the multiverse. Well, it's again one of the deep, open questions. So it's 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 one that uh, many people have strong opinions on, but there is no fact of the matter that we can settle on because there's no data, right? So it's it's conceivable that if you took a rocket ship and in some fanciful way went out into space and could just keep on going and going for as long as you want, you might never hit an edge. You might never hit a boundary. You might never hit a border. It might simply go on forever. And it's easy to say that, but if you actually sit quietly and think about what that means, right. that it goes on forever, 
It's impossible. Wow. I yeah. mean, it's there's nothing that goes on forever, right? Right. I mean, you know, abstractly, you can count and the numbers can keep on going, but it's hard to hold that infinity inside your brain. And to think that that infinity is actually sort of realized in terms of the actual expanse of space itself is, is pretty heady. But the alternative, that you hit an, an edge or a boundary, that's pretty crazy, too. Right. Like, like what is that boundary? <laughs> right, and what's like, on the other side well, of it? Is there another side? Is, right. is, does the other side even have any meaning to it? And, and why are we here and not there? And, and what's the boundary made of? Or is it just sort of where space comes to an end? So no matter how you slice it, it kind of slaps your head around. Um, and again, it's, it's a question that presumably has some kind of answer, but maybe we're not even phrasing the question correctly, and that's why the answers are so bizarre sounding. Right. And is that a concept that Einstein grappled with? The infinite universe? Well, in the general theory of relativity, luckily, he didn't need to commit when he applied it to the entire universe. He didn't need to commit to whether the universe was infinite or not. In one version of uh, cosmology that he came up with, he did imagine the universe was finite. Um, Finite, actually, in a spectacularly interesting way, where it doesn't have an edge and it's not infinite. He kind of was able to get the best of both worlds in one version of cosmology. Sort of think about the surface of the Earth. The surface of the Earth is finite. If you keep on walking, you'll come back to your starting point over and over again, Mm -hmm. and you'll never encounter an edge. You never encounter something where you can't go further. So that's a possibility, too. But the data today seems to strongly suggest that that, that's not the way the world is. so if Einstein were alive today, my guess is he might be in the infinite spatial expanse camp. That might be where he would sit. Hmm. Did you, um, have you gotten a chance to watch the, the National Geographic Einstein with Jeffrey Rush playing Einstein? I've, I've unfortunately not. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm quite familiar with the book on which it's based. Sure. You know, Walter Isaacson's book, as uh, you know, Walter and I were, were in frequent contact while he was writing the book. Oh, is that he right? Was, yeah, he was sort of wanting to make sure he was getting his tensor analysis right and, and not, you know, making some kind of scientific gaffe. And he did a spectacular job of learning the scientific ideas. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I've not seen the, uh, the adaptation on television yeah. yet. Maybe that's for the best. I mean, someone that you feel so sort of um, close to, to see him dramatized, it's just not going to, you know, there's, there's just no way that it's going to equal the vision you have in, in your way, mind. In a way. Yeah. Which is why, frankly, in Light Falls, where Einstein is a character in, in this dramatic piece, right. we made um, a, a, a very specific decision to not try to cast Einstein to look like Einstein, to sound like Einstein. In the live version that we do on stage, Einstein does not have a white hair with a crazy wig. He's just a guy. Hmm. Because we wanted the words, which are real and do come from the historical record, to be the only element that you would, as an audience member, kind of hang your hat on to, to get a sense of who this guy is mm-hmm. and, and get a feel for his take on the world. We didn't want people sitting there saying, well, that doesn't quite look like him. Right. You, you know, because that doesn't matter. We wanted the words and what he said to matter. That's smart. And, and as you were sort of writing that character, crafting that character, did you feel 
I don't know. Did you feel like it brought you a little bit closer to Einstein? Was it an enjoyable process to, to sort of get that close to him? Yeah, very, very much so, because, I mean, part of the research was to track down uh, every Einstein or verified Einstein quote that, that I could find. Hmm. So many things that I, I thought he had said, it turned out he hadn't quite said. Oh, really? And, you know, which is a good exercise to really go in and, and see. And, and then, you know, of course, in that process... You're going through his correspondences. You're going through his letters. You're going through uh, various lectures that he gave. And in that way, you are entering his world in a much more intimate way than when you're just studying his scientific ideas. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, You know, uh, I think that my business of TV writing and your business of theoretical physics actually has something in common. When a new writer comes to me saying he wants to go into the business, you know, I ask him if he can imagine doing anything else. And if he can, he should go do that thing instead. Um, I heard you say something very similar about going into theoretical physics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, why is that? Is it, is it like Hollywood where it's just super competitive and it's sort of unfair or, or what? I would say it's all of that. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an arena in which um, there are very few jobs and um, there is um, an opportunity for you know, spectacular achievement but there's also an opportunity for spectacularly missing your dreams. Hmm. I think, you know, many kids who imagine going into physics, they say, how cool would it be to come up with a new idea that peels back a layer of reality and, and will stand the test of time because it's some deep fundamental truth that, that nobody saw until I came along. I mean, how romantic, how sure. uh, incredibly alluring that notion is. But it's so rare that anybody gets to that level of achievement. I mean, you walk into any <clears throat> science library, and it is chock full of journals, you know, wall to wall. And you know, now it's all online, but there's you know, a gazillion papers that have been written. But if you ask yourself, how many of those papers have profoundly mattered. Many of them do matter because person X thinks of Y and that affects person Z and you get this wonderful ripple effect that happens and that ultimately yields progress. But how many of those papers were the watershed pivotal moments where our understanding just changed? Mm-hmm. Just a handful. So, so if you're going into the field for that kind of a contribution, you're bound to be crushed by the end. Right. And, and what is that sort of, um, the big romantic question that, um, a young Einstein out there is, is, is hoping to answer someday? Is it how quantum mechanics, you know, conforms with gravity? Is it, is it what the universe is made up of? I've always find it completely bananas that we only know something like four or 5% of the stuff out there in the universe. We don't know the 95% of it is, is what dark energy, dark matter is what's, what's the big romantic well, those are certainly, um, certainly two of them, but uh, some others that even speak to uh, more overarching questions are, you know, how did the universe actually get started? Mm-hmm. Why is there a universe at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah, good question. Uh, what is space made out of? What is time made out of? Or are there molecules or atoms of space and time that somehow will one day identify and and when they coalesce in the right pattern they yield space and time as we know it but 
when they haven't coalesced in that pattern, they're somehow out there as little nuggets of space or nuggets of time? You know, these are the kinds of, of questions that um, if we could answer them, uh, those would be the papers that would radically change our understanding. Right. And are is there sort of one fundamental uh, question in there, or are they all sort of, you know, once we get one of them, once we figure out why there's something rather than nothing, that'll also tell us what why the universe began? Um, that's, a hard, that's a hard question to answer. Yeah. My guess is that um, there is some singular idea that once revealed will have such... Um, a powerful impact on all these questions, perhaps subsuming them, perhaps showing that either we now have the answer or showing that they weren't actually real questions in the first place. They seemed like real questions, but now in this new context that we reveal, they are just shrugged off as irrelevant. Mm-hmm. That could happen too. And what about in our lifetimes? Is there anything you're hoping that we're going to be able to answer? Um, I mean, all of this sounds very far in the future, being able to answer. Is, is there anything well, more? They do, all these questions do sound far in the future, but I've been shocked in even the last five years that there has been progress made on the question of what is space made of. Hmm. We don't yet have a, an unassailable answer, but the very fact that we can write down equations and draw some conclusions and make some suggestions is pretty stunning in its own right. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, this is, I mean, this has been so great to talk to you, Brian. Um, you know, w- with the sequel to Icarus, um, that's sort of, you say that's in, in development now. We're hoping for that sometime, what, next year? It could be next year. Yeah. You know, that would, that would be nice. Um, yeah. you know, 2019 is, um, a wonderful anniversary. It's the hundredth anniversary of the confirmation of Einstein's general relativity through eclipse observations right. that took place in, uh, May 29th of 1919. So uh, to commemorate that, uh, actually, Light Falls is going to have um, a national uh, uh, PBS broadcast. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so that, that will be fun. But I'd love to also have um, you know, a live presentation of the full Icarus performance, since that's also about Einstein's yes. ideas. Uh, uh, my vision is I'd love to do this in the Great Lawn in Central Park sometime in the summer of 2019. Oh, man. So I'm probably dreaming, but, um, but that, that would be a, a great moment to premiere the piece. That sounds amazing. I've always thought that was that story of, you know, um, people around the world knowing that this eclipse is either going to prove or disprove this, you know, groundbreaking yeah. theory that Einstein had, Einstein had. That's such an extraordinary, you know, it's a romantic story. It's, 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 it's. I, I can't believe that hasn't been dramatized before. Yes, yeah. and in fact, when you when you put that in the context of World War One having just ended, mm. and here you have these uh, these British astronomers going out to test a German physicist theory, mm. uh, it's just a wonderful coming together of the world around ideas that transcend all the things that divide us. Ah, oh, that's so great. Um, well, thank you so much, Brian. This has been really, really fun. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. That was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Um, I was going to ask him, uh, why is there something rather than nothing if he hadn't brought it up? Uh, 
just, man, I could spend all day, uh, you know, reading his stuff about, um, you know, dark energy and dark matter and what the multiverse is. And, you know, we didn't even get into string theory just because I didn't want to uh, embarrass myself with how dumb my questions would be. But just, I highly recommend going out and reading his stuff. Um, also, besides the big questions he asks, you know, just his passion for Einstein is contagious. Um, it's, it's just a, a really great reads. Um, so, you know, thank you so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, uh, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. Um, you can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week. <laughs>